Hi, welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Paul Jay. Uh, be back in just a few seconds to talk about the situation in Cuba with James Early. Please don't forget the donate button because we can't do any of this if you don't donate. If you already have donated, well, thanks very much. Uh, but you could hit the subscribe button, the share button, sign up on the email list and be back in a second. Unprecedented protests have been taking place in Cuba, some demanding an end to the government led by the Communist Party of Cuba, others an end to the shortages of goods and services. There's also has been large-scale rallies and marches in support of the government and socialism. These, of course, get little to no coverage in American media. There are calls coming from sections of the Cuban-American community and some politicians in Florida for some kind of U.S. intervention, whatever that means. There are also calls coming from many quarters that it's time to drop the sanctions and embargo against Cuba, something President Obama was on the way to accomplishing, Trump undid, and so far Biden is mostly continuing the Trump policies. Now joining us to discuss this is James Early. He's a former Assistant Secretary Education and Public Service at the Smithsonian Institution. He's on the board of the Institute for Policy Studies. And for 45 years, he's been working with Cuban civil society and government. And he met with President Miguel Diaz-Canel last July during a visit he made to the Cuban School of Medicine at a graduation. Thanks very much for joining us, James. My pleasure to join you, Paul. So first of all, I, you're not in Cuba, but I know you follow it very closely and you know lots of people there. So first of all, what's your sense of what's actually going on on the ground and what sparked it? Well, I think the term unprecedented is an appropriate term that we have unprecedented public protests, uh, which reflects an unprecedented uh, material reality and political reality in Cuba, uh, which is to say that after 60 years of an economic uh, war trying to strangle the Cuban revolution towards regime change of its government, coupled with uh, the pandemic and the intensified uh, measures by the Trump administration, which are being maintained to the Biden administration, contrary to his campaign promises, uh, we do have an unprecedented situation, the analog of which has not been seen since the fall of the Soviet Union. And so people are hurting. Uh, there are short lines, there are shortages of food. Uh, people are frustrated. Uh, the government over the last 10 years, dating back uh, to the presidency of uh, Raul Castro, who brought uh, an accord with President Barack Obama towards uh, full diplomatic relations, uh, talked much about corruption during his 10-year period, much about inefficiency in government. Uh, Diaz-Canal Bermudez, the current president, uh, who worked as an associate of Raul Castro for 10 years, almost monthly is hitting on those topics of inefficiency, uh, a malfunctioning uh, economy, saying to the Communist Party of Cuba and to the government of Cuba that they must do better, they must produce, they must provide basic goods and necessities and uh, reasonable aspirations for the Cuban people. So this is the context in which uh, we have these, this unprecedented public protest. It is my sense, however, that the protests might be divided broadly into two ideological perspectives. Uh, one is an anti-socialist uh, movement on calling outrightly for the removal of the president and calling for the 
installation of capitalism. Some of them aligned with the U.S. State Department and right-wing Cubans and other right-wingers from Venezuela and Colombia and Brazil and the greater South America, which is known as Miami, Florida or Southern Florida. And then there are uh, Cuban patriots who are citizens, some of them uh, socialists, some of them communists, who are also raising the same critiques, but from a different end. That is calling their stewards of government to be accountable, to provide those things. And some of them are putting forth proposals to the government to do so. So I think that's the complexity of the story, which is being oversimplified in the Western mainstream media, uh, as uh, this is the failure of Cuban socialism and that uh, what is needed uh, at best as a liberal move is to provide humanitarian aid. Uh, as uh, President Biden uh, has said uh, today, that he's prepared to give vaccines to Cuba, uh, but he will not allow remittances. Well, this is just uh, a ploy, an empty political ploy to embarrass the Cuban government, which has already produced two effective vaccines and is helping people around the world, including developed countries, uh, to fight COVID-19. Uh, so we have a, a really problematic situation within Cuba, and we've also got a problematic situation here uh, that uh, the presidency of uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are betraying their campaign promises to renew the accords of President Barack Obama and President Raul Castro. Just to quickly talk about the hypocrisy of the American position, and then we can dig into some of what you said. Uh, I mean, it's clear that the motivating factor of the United States is not about democracy in Cuba, or maybe they would be concerned about democracy in Haiti. Uh, for decades and decades, just a few miles away from Cuba, they support a, a small group of oligarchic families who work with foreign corporations, organized crime, uh, uh, collaborating with the U.S. and Canadian governments uh, to treat the Haitian people almost like slaves. Uh, so if, if, if they want to quickly democratize someplace, start with Haiti, where they practically control the place. So we can rule that off the table, that that actually has anything to do with anything. Um, but that said, there are some real issues uh, in Cuba. And, and, I, and I, one of the reasons I like interviewing you is that you, you have the, both the skill and willingness to talk about what's wrong with, the social, with how socialism is developed in Cuba. Because as you say, even the Cuban leadership uh, is talking more and more openly about what's wrong. Uh, but let's start sort of gi uh, a couple of the basic critiques of Cuba and why these developed. So uh, clearly the, the, the major critique that's coming certainly from the West, but also from within Cuba, is the lack of political rights, uh, the restrictions on freedom of speech, uh, the inability to organize any kind of other political parties. So what what's... The historical development of this, and and do you think Cuba is too slow to reform on these issues? Well, I take my first clue from the internal narratives of debates and conflicts and projected resolutions among the Cubans, uh, and which would suggest that over the last 10 years at least, uh, within Cuba, coming from among socialists themselves, who have critiqued the fact uh, that 
uh, Grandma, the official newspaper, was really not reflective of the sentiments and the views and aspirations of the Cuban people. There have been some changes in Grandma, uh, opening it up uh, to dialogical relationships with uh, the readers, uh, where people write in critiques or comments. Yeah, for people who don't know, this is like the, one of the major newspapers in Cuba. Well, it, it is the official organ of, of, the, of, the, of the Communist Party. Uh, right. It is the sole, really, main printed organ. And so that you've had uh, some movement there. Uh, it may not be what I would want, but one has to measure it in the context of what have been the constrictions and the liberties that have been negotiated by the Cuban people with their stewards of governance over the last 60 years. Uh, then there was critique uh, that there was not enough open air. And so the government moved uh, to provide access to the Internet. And uh, one might say, ironically, uh, the organizing against the government is significantly being done on social media. But that's another democratic advance. Then there have been the debates within the party and the government and the resolutions to decentralize, to move away from an overly vertical, top-down centralism, uh, to uh, empower provinces uh, to have more say in the policy direction of the country and to change the structure of the top leadership uh, of governance. Uh, it was Raul Castro who put forth legislation that was adopted, uh, that the top leaders cannot uh, be in governance, uh, those positions for more than two five-year terms. And uh, he rotated out after a 10-year term himself. And it is likely that um, Diaz-Canales as president, uh, if he stays two terms, uh, will move on and new leadership will brought in, be brought in. These are all democratic flowerings within the context of socialism. And when I say democratic, because this is one of these um, metaphysical terms uh, that is projected as a universal without looking at the diverse ways in which citizens in diverse situations really actualize their, as the Cubans would say, a protagonistic power or proactive power. Uh, we've seen more Cubans on the internet, including uh, communists who uphold the revolution, who criticize the revolution, sometimes offering uh, proposals, but other times simply offering their critiques. So the fact of the matter is that we have seen, I won't say a flowering of a new stage of democracy, but we've seen new penheads of light emerge uh, in this recentralization away from a strict top-down leadership uh, to really relying more on one of the most educated populations in the world, according to the United Nations, to really express themselves. As an outsider, I think it could go further, but I'm an outsider. It, it would, it's really important to see how the Cubans themselves are negotiating and measuring and what compromises they come up with and how that is reflected uh, in, in a more empowered citizenry, their voices, uh, their enterprise. Uh, the new adjustments in the economy have really been struggling with what kind of construct of an of a open market, of a small enterprise market. Would it be a Vietnam model? Uh, would it be a Chinese model? Uh, would it be a sui generis Cuban model? They have not been able to figure that out uh, to effective levels. And the government as well as citizens are expressing a lot of frustration about that. I've always thought that they could have allowed more openness uh, in terms of uh, public opinion, speaking out, even organizing. But I, I say that in understanding in the context that's from the very beginning of the Cuban revolution, especially as it became clearer and clearer, it was really a socialist revolution. 
that 40 miles off the coast of Florida, the United States was going to do everything possible to overthrow this government. And the more space you create for oppositional organizing, the more space you create for the Americans to fund and control that oppositional organizing. So I get the restrictions on oppositional organizing for quite some time. And let me just tell you quickly something I found just to show the extent of how insane the American policy was. Uh, it turns out that in, just before the Russians sent the missiles uh, to Cuba, I guess it's 1962, there's a meeting takes place with Robert Kennedy. I don't know if you know this story because it just came out in some documents that were released uh, for the 9-11 Commission, although it had nothing to do with 9-11. A meeting takes place chaired by Robert Kennedy and a special group to plan the invasion of Cuba. And... Kennedy suggests getting a domestic airline, painting it with the colors to make it look like a domestic airliner, shooting it down, and using it as the pretext for the invasion of Cuba. And this is in the actual minutes of this meeting that's now been released under uh, this 9-11 commission. So, so within that context, you, you can understand. On the other hand, why couldn't they allow more openness, but make it illegal to take foreign money. I, I totally agree with you. Let me just comment on that scenario with Robert Kennedy, which I am not familiar with, but it sounds like a page out of 1898 with the sinking of the Roosevelt in which it is thought the United States sunk the Roosevelt in order to uh, set up a rationale for the occupation of Cuba. Uh, so this is another uh, of the dastardly reflections of people who uh, talk in high-flying high ideas about democracy, but then practice the most dastardly anti-democratic views. I do agree with you that an over-centralism, a, a chauvinistic view of let us deliver unto our citizens rather than let us be the stewards of collaboration with our citizens and take on the responsibility of trying to objectify for them the multiple and often contradictory views of what citizens' aspirations are and to make proposals in the general welfare, which means uh, that is always a compromise. Uh, a domestic and international policy is always a compromise among interests. But what is in the general welfare of the citizenry? I personally, as an external observer, feel that there has been too heavy a hand. The question of race, for example, uh, the uh, Cuban governments uh, and the Communist Party have admitted that in the first years of the revolution, they made that a taboo issue. And I recall writing back, I think it was 1989, uh, when the late Manning Marable uh, uh, asked me to go on a visit with him, and he published in his Souls magazine out of Columbia University, an article I wrote, Reflections on Race uh, in Cuba. And I pointed out, uh, easy reduction, that if you are not honest with yourself about what's going on in your life or your society, your enemies will find those points and they will use them against you. And indeed, on the question of race that has been raised uh, and uh, uh, through the U.S. State Department and on the question of the issues of democracy, it is being raised. So it is in the interest of the Cuban revolution to be more open, uh, as the late Fernando Martinez Heredia, uh, who uh, was a critical Marxist, uh, who ran one of the key centers in Cuba. He says, you always have to have a critical engagement with yourself not just uh, looking and fawning over your extraordinary achievements. And certainly Cuba, a country with very little resources uh, and 11 million people starting out in 59 with 6 million people in a world of 8 billion has done extraordinary things. 
but you can't fall in love. You can't seduce yourself. You have to ask yourself and looking into that mirror, where are the cracks? Am I, why am I not seeing them? Because we are human, they must be here. And to put that in some balance with the extraordinary achievements, both internally with regard to healthcare and biotechnology, with regard to education and arts and culture, and with regard to solidarity internationalism and helping developing and developed countries around the world with really, really uh, major onslaughts of, of disease and helping to abate and to prevent that. So yes, I think there is a self-critique uh, uh, that is very important. And I think they may be learning those lessons. Uh, I don't think the government is going to fall. People, if I've been doing interviews and people say, well, will the government fall? No, I, have, I do not think that will be the case. The big question will be, what will the stewards of governance learn from this and how will they deal with it? Now, you raise another issue uh, that uh, about uh, multiple parties or it's a single party country. And that's an issue that many on the left, many progressive and socialists around the world are debating. And it, I don't know if that will come to the fore in Cuba. And if it does, how it will come to the fore in Cuba. You know, when Marx and Engels talked about the dictatorship of the proletariat, uh, it was, it was, first of all, they used the word dictatorship in the 19th century before there was a Hitler. I don't know if they even would have used that word if they, if they knew what was coming. Uh, but it was supposed to be the use, the, the use of the state against the old bourgeois capitalist elements. But it was the other flip side was supposed to be democracy for the working people. It was never meant to be dictatorship of a party. And no matter whether, even if, whatever best intent people have, if you don't, if they don't work, and I'm saying this not to condemn the Cubans, because it's easy to sit here and say these things, but it's more a lesson to be learned for hopefully future models. If there isn't as much effort put on democratization, because there is no question that after decades in power, or even less, you get hacks, bureaucratic hacks. I saw them in Cuba. I saw them in Venezuela, and there needs to be a way for the people to exercise their democratic, what's this, overseership maybe is the word, to clean these hacks out, or you do wind up with what essentially becomes a dictatorship of the party. I'm in, I'm in total agreement with you, and I, I'm familiar with Venezuela. I spent time with Hugo Chavez, and I've and I, and I spent time with uh, Nicolas Maduro there. Um, there is a culture of centralism uh, that I think carries a de facto arrogance with it, a chauvinism that we will provide for the people rather than that we are servants, we are stewards helping the people to objectify what the various needs and aspirations are and coming to compromises, the best compromises that can uplift everybody at a particular moment. And I often use the Analogy, some people who are living in uh, the mountains want a better road uh, down to the capital city. Uh, some people living um, uh, on the river want a bridge to be able to get to the surrounding areas. Uh, other people want to be able to cross the country. And then you look at your budget and you objectify for your citizenry. These are the principal things that are being asked for. We do not have the wherewithal to do them all uh, or do them all at one time. 
Perhaps it is building a road across the country that better connects us all is in the best welfare of the country at this moment. Uh, so the notion of a, a political class, an analog will be that as these political parties. This is a debate all over Latin America, and people are very frustrated with left-wing political parties, uh, social movements uh, who really cannot run a nation because they are movements. You really have to institutionalize power. That's why you have a state, and uh, you're able then to do this in a more balanced way of how to evaluate where things are. But I think this is a critique that I hope the Cubans are raising among themselves. And certainly from an external point of view, uh, I think it is one of the problems of an over-centralism and a kind of elitism that goes on with many leftists that we know better than the citizens. And again, the irony with Cuba is it has a very highly educated population. And uh, then how to help them release that power in the context of developing a socialist state and realizing that treason is an issue that all countries have to de deal with. No, we're not going to allow someone to come in and change our system. But short of that, raise whatever critiques you have and put whatever proposals you have. And it should be accepted by the stewards of government and helping people to negotiate the way forward. I mean, I have no way to tell you know, where the majority sentiment is in Cuba. Anecdotally, uh, when I was in Cuba a few years ago, I did this thing where I rented a car and just drove all around picking up hitchhikers. I mean, that's the other thing. You know, they, they try to paint Cuba as this very closed society. Uh, if you go as a tourist, you're confined to tourist enclaves or something like that. And it's, it's simply not the case. You go anywhere you want. I say to people, there are two things you can't do in Cuba the same two things you can't do here in the United States. You cannot just walk into a military base, just sort of go wandering in or a police department just wandering in. And you just can't walk into a federal building with, you know, without some identification. Well, actually, no. Oh, no, no. There is other stuff you can't do, but but it's not clear, at least when I was there. I got very friendly with a guy who worked as a waiter at a hotel we were staying at. And uh, I, I said, well, can I come see where you live? And there was a lot of caution. Well, I don't know, da 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 So I, I kind of pushed him on it, and he, he sort of shrugged, okay, what the hell. So he took me home, and I was in the house, and I, you know, he had a picture of Castro on the wall, and, and uh, modest but nice, nice enough. And, uh, but then he, he said, well, you better go now. And I said, why? I kind of expected you know, I'd be invited to lunch or something. And, uh, and he, said, he said, well, the neighborhood committee will see you. Now, it wasn't that he was worried about the police. It was his own neighbors who were... The Committee for the Defense of, of the Revolution. But, yeah. you know, in crisis times here in the United States with the threat of ter ter terrorism, uh, we have had the same proposition. Check out oh. your neighbors. If you see something... Uh, honestly, far worse. Uh, <laughs> if you see something, say something. Well, let me, let me just finish whatever I was getting at. But when I'm driving around with these hitchhikers... Uh, because I could only speak to people that spoke English, I was getting particularly a cross section of people that may have had a little more access to Western media or at any rate, a lot of the hitchhikers were very dissatisfied, uh, with the way things were going, but they hated what they called the Cuban mafia in Miami. They didn't hate their government. They had a lot of problems. Uh, they thought it was there were certain things that were unjust 
Uh, they weren't sure that all the privations were being shared equally, but they despised the people in Florida and they, and they did not want that, those people intervening. And I think that's a real minority. Uh, but what sense do you get of where the sort of majority opinion is? Well, I think the majority opinion has been reflected historically in that Cubans are a proud people. And uh, one can say whatever one wants to say about Fidel Castro, and I have mostly favorable things to say about him. Uh, they were very proud uh, that he had these big visions and that he was able to bring uh, a lot of them uh, into fruition, not alone, not by himself, by, by building a cadre of people and a citizenry who actually produced the healthcare, who produced the educational system. We must remember that Cuban, the Cuban Revolution has had three transition in its top leadership with, with basically not even a wrinkle or a rankle going on among the people about it. So they were able to institutionalize a set of values, a, a sense of humanism, uh, a sense of engagement and collectivity that says, these are our uh, virtues, these are our problems, we will settle them for ourselves. Uh, we don't want anybody else to do it. And one can imagine that if the death threat against the Cuban Revolution was uh, not just 90 miles away, uh, we may not have seen what I would call some of the distortions uh, of what is going on. And this is, I think, where we need to go in the U.S. relationship with Cuba. Allow the Cubans to debate and handle their own internal conflicts and come to their own resolutions. And let us see how they demonstrate how they will carry their nation forward. They will not turn into a Colombia, uh, which the United States coddles with seven military bases and accepts all of the violence against trade unionists, uh, undermining of the peace ac accords and the daily racist murders that go on. The silence on the part of the Biden-Harris administration about uh, Brazil, where over half the population is uh, self-identified in the official census as Afro-descendants. You'll never hear a discussion about race uh, there. And uh, the other things that the United States government, Palestine and so forth and so on. So the United States is in no position to assume a moral uh, a vector uh, of looking at how uh, the Cuban government should handle itself. We should join the family of nations, the 184 nations, uh, 80, 184 to two of the most recent vote in the UN to get rid of this blockade. Uh, that overwhelming majority has been exhibited for the last number of years. Uh, the United States is a rogue nation in that regard, and we need to call it as such. And we really, uh, you know, Trumpism is still around, but Donald Trump is no, is no longer the rationale for voting against Trump in order to have Biden-Harris, because much of the vote was not for Biden-Harris, it was against Trump. But the, two, the 2022 senatorial elections, uh, the 2024 presidential election uh, that's coming around, we have to say to this administration, you will be held accountable for going back on the campaign promises, which is one of the planks uh, that we voted you in. And he used Barack Obama's name very liberally. Again, the accord was between Barack Obama and President Raul Castro. Uh, but be that as it may, this chauvinism that somehow America can wave its magic wand and help people of the world. Uh, we have a big problem uh, with this Biden-Harris administration. We see it on civil rights. Uh, we see it in not wanting to deal with the filibuster. Uh, we see them in coddling uh, the violence in Colombia. The CIA chief was just down in Colombia. Uh, the Haitian issue now that is unraveling of 
U.S. having trained these mercenaries, uh, these mercenaries being sort of the Israel uh, of uh, the Americas who are being deployed all over the world. Uh, so we have to put a lot of pressure. And when I say we, I'm not just talking about people who carry the big P, progressive, or people who then see themselves as leftists or socialists. I'm talking about earnest Americans uh, who want to live in a world that follows the protocol of nations to handle uh, issues where they can be found mutual benefit, but also can handle the heavy conflictual issues of ideology and politics, but within the standards set up by the family of nations. And right now, the United States exists widely, wildly outside of that framework. Uh, let, let's deal with just a few specific things that are being talked about in the media. Uh, one of the things that's going around today is that it's not true that the embargo is to blame. I, I saw a CNN report which listed the, the reasons for uh, why there's such economic problems in Cuba and didn't even mention sanctions. And then there's another article that says, well, Cuba can trade with other countries. They don't need the United States. Uh, what is the real issue here? Well, OK, Cuba is 90 miles away from the United States. Um, there are Republican moderates on the Mississippi River in Mobile, Alabama, and, and I've met with them over the last 15, 20 years, who don't want to deal in ideology. They want to trade chicken wings and chicken breast, uh, uh, turkey necks. And the Cubans want to buy, and the Cubans at one time were buying a lot of uh, food, and they had to put up money on the table because they couldn't get loans. The United States not only uh, ha ha has restricted third parties from dealing with Cuba, they punish nations around the world, including Western developed nations who violate what the United States government says should be the way to deal with Cuba. So this embargo has had a qualitative effect. Jay, can I just give quickly one example? There's a Canadian company that's been very active in Cuba helping with mining and other issues. And the executives of that company were barred from ever traveling to the United States. And I think that's part of the Burns. Uh, this, is, this is the big stick uh, imperialism that the United States exhibits, uh, both with its enemies and its so-called allies. Uh, that it, and, and that's just totally unacceptable. And uh, citizens, of, I mean, we live in a connected world, so we're not just citizens of one country. We have a global responsibility, and, and we are uh, allowing our government to be a rogue government, and we are complicit uh, uh, in, in that. But this embargo has had a qualitative effect. But Diaz, President Diaz-Canales Bermudez has said, we also must look to our own shortcomings, our own inefficiencies, our own errors, our own failures. Uh, even if the blockade has been a qualitatively distorting and limiting uh, element in the material circumstances uh, of, of, of Cuba. So the embargo is a, a big issue and, it's, and we have to face it. And we're seeing more and more people uh, raise contradictions with the Biden administration. You've got Congressman Gregory Meeks, who's head of the foreign relations uh, uh, desk uh, within the, on the Democratic side of the House who has called for a dialogue with Maduro, given the new National Assembly in, in, um, in Venezuela between the past, the peaceful opposition, a serious opposition to Maduro, but they are in dialogue. And, and he has said to the Biden administration, you should take this opportunity to enter into dialogue. But what does the, the, the Biden administration do? Uh, Blinken at the State Department comes out with this silly backward view that Guaido is the legitimate president. I mean, it's, 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 it's laughable. 
Uh, what does Biden do again uh, today with Cuba? He offers them vaccines, but says he will not allow remittances. That's not a serious statecraft. That is an arrogance that says, let's see how much longer the Cuban people uh, can live under these oppressed economic circumstances that the United States government has had a qualitative role in imposing and see if they will overthrow their government. Why is Cuba having trouble with vaccinations? Because as you say, I thought they had created their own, but they don't seem to be as vaccinated as one would think they should be. They're being prohibited from buying syringes on the market uh, as they were limited in getting ventilators on uh, the market. And the Cubans have had a spike. Um, there, I just saw a stat that says uh, Cuba's population is more or less equivalent to that of Ohio. I think Ohio has had something like 900,000 uh, cases of contagion and 20,000 deaths. And, uh, and the, um, the Cubans have had uh, under 3,000 deaths with a much smaller contagion. So by way of comparison, and when you look at them by way of comparison to Brazil or Colombia or Mexico that have far, a far bigger budgets, far more resources, free trading in the global economy, the Cubans are doing an extraordinary job. And so what we should do is step back, step into the protocols of nations, debate with them on those protocols, find mutual interests, Cancer drugs. Uh, Cuba has three pre uh, preventive cancer drugs. They have uh, drugs on diabetes that other people in the world are using. But it is the arrogance of U.S. empire, both Democrats and Republicans, and the silence of good people who are citizens across the spectrum here in the United States who are allowing this to go on. Uh, but we're beginning to see somewhat of a, a, a breakthrough of the voices that are coming out. Uh, Congressman McGovern and, and Barbara Lee from California have just asked for a meeting with Biden. They put out a public letter on that to say that you need to lift these uh, sanctions. Uh, there will be an article coming out in the New York Times soon with a number of people, of which I'm one of the signatories, along with many others, uh, calling for the dropping of these sanctions and, and the blockade. So we have to mature these contradictions uh, between the lofty ideas of, and rhetoric of uh, democracy being put forth by this administration and its actual vulgar, illegal, immoral practice, which is really taking lives. All right. Thanks very much for joining us, James. Thank you for having me. I look forward to the next time. And we will. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Please don't forget, we can't do this without your financial support. So click the donate button, get onto the email list, share the story. Thanks again.